we cannot not acknowledge what's going on in our world. Uh, many of you have seen uh, the, the footage from the last few days in France, and many prayers have been offered, I know, within our body and throughout the world. And this morning, I want to lift up a prayer on behalf of all those who have lost loved ones uh, for the fear and the anxiety that many of us feel, but much more so even in Europe, that God would do what only God can do uh, in this time. Let's pray together. God, our minds are not far from those who've lost loved ones this last week in the midst of senseless violence. And so, God, our, our prayer is that you would bring comfort and peace where there seems to be none, that you would embolden your body of believers in France and in other places throughout this world to live in the midst of difficult times. God, we lift up a prayer also on behalf of those it's hard to pray for, but you tell us to pray for our enemies, and so we do that this morning. For all those who are bent on violence and destruction, we pray that you would intervene, God. We pray for Paul's to emerge from people who are now enemies of the gospel of Christ. We pray for your conviction to change hearts that seem so bent on violence. We pray that somehow, God, those who don't know you would come to know you and that your church would stand up and be light in the midst of a dark world. This morning, God, would you do only what you can do and would you allow us as your hands and feet to be people of reconciliation and peace in a world that has been on division and violence. We pray this through the power and the full name of your Son, Jesus, and all God's people said, Amen. This morning we continue our series on breaking bread together. So far we've talked about several things in this message series. One is that the table is a place of celebration, that we leave the altar of sacrifice behind and we are reminded that because of Jesus' once-for-all sacrifice, we come together to celebrate the good news that we're now one in Christ Jesus. Last week we talked about uh, the fact that this is a communal meal, that we don't come to just share amongst ourselves, just us and God, but we realize that we're in the midst of a body and the miracle is that God brings this body and unites it around bread and around juice, that this story of Jesus and His death and resurrection still changes our lives today, amen? Last Sunday night, I also continued the series talking uh, about uh, the idea of, we often talk about taking communion. And we've become so adept at taking, haven't we? From Eve taking the fruit to David taking Uriah's wife to the continued sins of our lives where we take. Instead, we receive communion as a gift. We receive this gift at the table. And so today I want to take a different turn. I want us to talk about the table, the Lord's Supper, as an act of protest, which may be a different image than what you've heard about before when it comes to the table, but I think it's vital for us to understand this because I believe every Sunday when we take the bread and we take the cup, it is an act of protest. So more on that in a minute, but before that, I want to read from the book of James. If you have your Bibles, would you turn with me to James chapter 2, begin reading in verse 1. It's a little bit of a longer reading, so I invite you to take whatever position is comfortable to really hear these words and allow this, uh, these words to give life where there may be no life this morning. These are the words of James, but the word of the Lord. 
My brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in filthy old clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, you stand there or or sit on the floor by my feet. Have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my dear brothers and sisters, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom He promised to those who love Him? But you have dishonored the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are blaspheming the noble name of Him to whom you belong? If you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. For he who said, you shall not commit adultery, also said, you shall not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but you do commit murder, you become a lawbreaker. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. Because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Every week we share in this meal together that we're about to share after the message today. And we don't just receive the bread and the wine to check off an act of worship each week. We receive the body and blood of Jesus in order to practice the way that God intended for His community of believers to live. Another way to say it is we take this meal into our bodies as an act of protest against the ways things currently are in our world. Now, I don't know what that image conjures up for you today, this image of protest. Perhaps that's a very visual image in your mind of what protests might look like. And maybe this looks a little different than maybe the image in your mind, but I want to stick by this image this morning because I want to define the table as such, as an act of protest. So first, an act of protest is an act. And I think that's an important distinction for us because far too much of Christianity is absent of acts of actions. I've already found this morning it's hard to say this word acts. I'm not talking about AX or AXE, the body spray for middle schoolers. I'm talking about acts, A-C-T-S. In fact, if you think about Scripture in the table of contents, the fifth book of the New Testament has this word in it, right? Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, acts, the acts of the apostles. And I like that name, and part of the reason I like that name is that sometimes Christianity can turn into this faith where we come to just believe certain things, but it makes no impact on the behavior, the way of life we're called to live out. And so this is an act, and Christians are primarily people not who hold certain beliefs. That's sometimes what we believed. Christians are primarily people who live and act in a certain way because of the beliefs that we hold. This is an important thing for us to get Uh, straight in our minds. And even that image of in our minds kind of betrays what I'm talking about, doesn't it? Because in the Western world, so much is boiled down to what do we believe? What's in our heads? What's, What's orthodox? And do we believe the right things? Because if we believe the right things, then we can claim to be Christians and saved by God. But how do you know what someone believes? Is it by what they say or is it by the actions, the fruit of their lives that develop from the beliefs that are truly there. So the only way to know what someone actually believes is to look at their actions. 
because their actions are a better determination of their true belief than what they may claim with their words. I mean, there are many spouses who would claim to love their spouses, correct? But what really shows if you love your spouse is not the words that you say or the gift you give, it's the kind of life and ethic that you live out with your spouse. A husband loves a wife when he sacrifices his preferences for the good of his wife. A a wife loves a husband when she shows fidelity to him throughout the decades and years of marriage. So when Paul comes to 1 Corinthians 13, this passage on love, Paul does not say love is expressing love through words. What does he say? Let's go to that passage, 1 Corinthians 13. This is what Paul writes about love and how we know if it's there. 1 Corinthians 13, verse 4, love is patient, love is kind. It does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud, it does not dishonor others, it is not self-seeking, it is not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrongs, love does not delight in evil but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. How does Paul define love? By certain actions, doesn't he? That if you are kind and you show that over the decades and the years, that's expressing love. That if you keep no record of wrongs, that's what it means to love. In other words, love is shown shown through certain acts, through certain actions. And your actions reveal your beliefs far better than anything you could claim in a statement or creed of beliefs. But let us never forget that we are to live out certain acts as Christians. Jesus says it well in the Sermon on the Mount. This comes from Matthew Chapter 7. This is, these are the words he says about how you can figure out what someone believes, about if you, how you can tell the difference between false and good prophets. This is Matthew chapter 7, verse 15. Jesus says, watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. By their fruit you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, by their fruit, you will recognize them. And this is important for us to understand because so much of Christianity has had this rational bent to it, that if we just believe these things, then everything will be good. But what we truly believe is not the words that we proclaim or sing on Sunday morning. What we truly believe bears out in the actions that we live out. Barbara Brown Taylor uh, talks about this very well in one of her books. This is what she writes. With all the conceptual truths in the universe at His disposal, Jesus did not give them something to think about together when He was gone. Instead, He gave them concrete things to do, specific ways of being together in their bodies that would go on teaching them what they needed to know when he was no longer around to teach them himself. Do this, he said. Not believe this, but do this in remembrance of me. See, sometimes we don't need to believe something as much as we need to do something. And every time when we come together on Sunday morning, we partake of this meal that is an action. It's reminding us this meal actually forms us in certain ways as a community of believers. Because faith is not an abstraction. Faith is a living out of a way of life through the beliefs of Jesus and the way of life He showed to us. So first, an act of protest is an act. But second, an act of protest is a protest. Did you hear James' words that we read earlier in our service? He's not speaking specifically about the table in this passage, but he is talking about the worship assembly, that when we get together, there are certain ways of being that we should enact, and there are certain ways we shouldn't. When someone wealthy walks in, he writes, 
and you give them the best seats. And then you, you, you have someone who's in a little bit more ragged clothing and you, you sit him at the, at the foot of your... There's a problem when you do that because the gospel's not being enacted in the right ways. You're just living out the ways of the world. Do not show favoritism is what he says. And he talks about it specifically in the worship assembly. And what I want to suggest this morning is one of the key ways in the assembly that we learn not to show favoritism, not just here, but when we go out into the world is how we partake of communion together, how this Lord's Supper, this meal that Jesus enacted and called for us to continue, how it forms us as a people of God. Because at the table, what we're doing is we are unlearning the ways of the world, and we're learning new ways to live as a community of faith. You've heard me say this before, and I'll probably say it again at some point, but the world loves to cast Christians as backwards people. As people who live in a nostalgic time in the past, people who are behind the times, and if they would just throw away their archaic Scripture and their modes of living, then maybe they could finally jump into the 21st century. And those who believe that tend to think of themselves as cutting-edge people, people who are living in the 21st century as you should. But I want to suggest that Christians are actually people who are much more forward-thinking and progressive than the world is. See, I believe that when we're at our best, Christians are the most progressive people on the face of the earth. And what I mean by that, let me define that for you this morning. See, there is a day on its way when God is going to judge the earth. There's a day in the future when God is going to restore everything. He's going to make all things new. And one day that future is going to look a whole lot better than the world as it is today. So every time that the kingdom of God as it will be expressed in the future on the day of the Lord comes into the present, it's putting the future on display right now. So we ought not live as people who try to drag up the past or try to live in the current day. What we're trying to do as the people of God is to put on display to the world a way of life that looks like heaven one day. The Holy Spirit allows us to do this, allows to put these things on so that we can give people a glimpse of what is on its way. We're actually people who are ahead of the times, not behind them. And I believe as Christians, we're called to do a similar thing that Jesus did. Jesus came from the future, and he's living that out with people. He's not just preaching about the future. What he's doing is he's healing people. And what is healing? Healing is pointing people to say, one day your bodies are going to be restored to this. And I'm already giving you a glimpse of what it will one day look like. He's feeding people and making sure there's abundance where there's not enough. He's trying to put on display to people the future in the present. And what God through the Holy Spirit is allowing us a chance to do is to do the very same thing. So that whenever there is injustice in the world, the people of God are called to come and bring and speak justice into those situations. That's bringing the future into the present. When there's not enough food to go around, it's the people of God who are supposed to rally together and make sure there is enough food to go around. Where there is brokenness, we as the people of God are bringing from the future to the present healing of all kinds. Wherever there's favoritism, we as the people of God are bringing God's future equality to live today. That's what Paul says in Galatians 3.28. There's no longer Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. That's a thing of the past, but in God's future, we're all one in Christ Jesus. And those distinctions don't mean the same thing at the table as they mean out in the world so often. So the world is actually the one who's living behind the times as we, as the people of God, are called to put God's future on display in the present. Say amen if you're with me this morning. And this is why I believe the table can serve as an act of protest because what we are protesting 
are the very things in the world as they are now that are not as God intends for them to be. So when we come together as a people, when we eat this bread, when we drink this cup, we're being reminded that the world as it is is going to change. One day it will be more whole. One, more, one day relationships will be restored. And we do the best we can when we come together to give others a sign and a foretaste of God's future. We are tr- being trained to see God's future and to enact it in the world. Now, in much of the world, the caste system is how the world is run. Some of you know the history of India uh, particularly, and there, there's the priests who are at the top of that society, and then there are the warriors, and under the warriors are the merchants, and under the merchants are the servants, and under the servants are the untouchables. And whatever caste you're born into is the caste that you're to stay in. You marry within that caste, you find a job within that caste, there's no working your way up the ladder because this is the way it works. And, and the way you justify that caste system is you put the priests at the top, and if the priests are at the top, then obviously God has ordained the society to be as it is. Interesting how we continue to keep things in order, don't we? We give certain people certain ways of talking, and they're able to talk to the rest to say, hey, everything's as it should be. It's easy as a priest to say that in that culture. And if the gods support this, then we shouldn't overturn anything that God has put in place. And it's not just in India. In fact, this is the world that James is writing to. A world where social status was everything. A, a world of honoring and of being honored. A world where those who were above others, that had more wealth, that were to be honored. You give them favor, hoping that favor might be returned on you. And into that world, James says, look, if someone as rich is walking in here, if someone of a higher class is walking in, I know it makes sense to seat them at the best seat and to make sure they're well fed. And that those who are poor in a lower class caste system, you make sure they stay there. You don't need to treat them with any deference, but that's not how the gospel works. That's not how the kingdom of God works to just maintain these distinctions that happen in the world. That's not how this meal is supposed to go on. And even though it's not the world that God will one day bring, isn't this the world we know today? I mean, it may not look like India, but there's still these distinctions that are clear around us. I mean, it's the wealthy who get uh, at the front of the line. It's the wealthy who, who, who get the best seats at the ballpark. It's the wealthy who have the best lawyers who get the penthouse suites. It's the wealthy that all the presidential candidates are flocking to now to get their money, and no one comes to most of us trying to find that. And so we're used to this world that's broken up, that membership has its privileges. And James protests that. And what he says is, that's not the way the kingdom of God works. When you come into the house of God, when you surround yourselves at this table, you do not bring the distinctions of the world in here. You don't bring your caste systems and make sure that these people get fed and these don't. That was the problem we talked about last week in 1 Corinthians. But if you want to take the faith of the gospel and put it into practice, pure and undefiled religion, as he defines it in James 1.27, It's to care for orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. When the wealthy come in, you don't give them the positions of honor. No, none of that matters when you enter into the kingdom of God. God's future doesn't have name badges and corner offices. And God's future will all be one as He is one. And sure, wealth may be the first thing that comes to mind. It's what we tend to talk about, but there's more than this. If you're in the academic world, there's There's degrees from certain institutions that gain you certain things. There's tenure that you can develop over the years. There's IQ that distinguishes us. Sometimes it just matters how long you've been somewhere. I heard the story recently about Landon Saunders, who was a longtime preacher in Churches of Christ. And Landon uh, told the story about a a guy in his church when he was a younger minister that 
Every time a new initiative would come up, the guy would respond with the same line over and over again. I, I don't know. I, I put a lot of money into this church. And every time a new initiative would come, it would be the same statement. I don't know. I put a lot of money into this church. And so one day Landon decided, I'm not going to lunch with this guy because i got an initiative. I might as well let him in on this because he's put a lot of money in. And, and so he goes and he has this conversation with him and he says, I don't, I don't know, Landon. I put a lot of money into this church. The same card that had been played over and over again. And Landon said, uh, do you know how much money you've actually put in to the church? And the guy responded, I don't, I don't know. He said, would you do me a favor and go figure that out because I'm ready to buy you out. <laughs> I mean, there, there are these distinctions. It's not just wealth. It, it looks different in different places, but we show favoritism, don't we? Ways of showing honor here and showing less honor there. This sneaks up on us in ways we would never anticipate. We've got to call an end, no matter the source of what the favoritism is. James calls favoritism out. It's prejudice, is what he says. James calls out adultery and murder. We know those are wrong. But right next to those, he says, if you're going to call out murder and adultery, don't forget favoritism, because the gospel calls all those to a close, to an end. To the call of the gospel, the heart of the gospel is a call to end favoritism. It's a call against racism. It's a call against individualism. It's a call against every type of division that challenges us to treat people as they should be treated because the world specializes in those things, but not at the table of the Lord. Because we are people of the future. And this meal prompts us toward that future. The table of the Lord is not a place where we seat the best and the brightest in certain positions of honor and serve those that... Don't have the distinction of the corner office in certain ways that are different. The table of the Lord is a protest against that way of thinking. It's a a protest against the distinctions that show up at other tables and other dinners. At this table, we are sinners who are redeemed by the grace of God. We are sinners made into saints, into holy ones. Not because of anything we've done or any distinction we have, but because of what God in Jesus Christ has done at the cross. And so when we take on the blood of Jesus, we drop those distinctions. We drop, you remember what Paul says in Philippians 3, right? I I was a Pharisee of Pharisees. I was all these things, but I consider those things nothing, rubbish compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. When we come to the table, we drop all those distinctions. You can leave the resume at the door because when we come here, we're all on level playing ground. And it all starts as sinners who become saints because of the body and blood of Jesus. Amen? When we come to the table, we come to be reminded of our identity, that we are children who have, through the broken body of Jesus, been restored. We are children redeemed through the blood of Jesus Christ. We are one around this table. And that was a radical act in the first century, and perhaps it's a radical act still today. Richard Beck, one of my favorite writers, has this to say about this idea. He says, participation in the Lord's Supper is an inherently moral act. In the first century and in our own time, people who would have never associated with each other in the larger society sit as equals around the table of the Lord. The Eucharist, therefore, is not simply a symbolic expansion of the moral circle. The Lord's Supper becomes a profoundly subversive political event in the lives of the participants. The sacrament brings real people, divided in the larger world, into a sweaty, intimate, flesh-and-blood embrace where there shall be no difference between them and the rest. You hear what... Richard's saying, 
In the first century, it was set up. Caesar was, uh, made sure that all of these meals, you would honor those that should get honored, and those that shouldn't get honored made sure they knew it as well. But in the kingdom of God, Caesar doesn't get to bring the rules to the table. And all those distinctions that Caesar would say are more important, and the gospel, they don't mean anything at all. When you come in here, you drop those distinctions, you drop the name badge, you drop the, 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 the money that we make that distinguishes us from one another, and we are one at the table. And that's good news, isn't it? But for those who see themselves as better than others, it's bad news. For centuries, people have struggled with this idea. This isn't just about wealth, though, is it? I mean, when we come to the table, there's a spiritual hierarchy that can develop if we're not careful. Those that think, well, I'm, I'm obviously more righteous than that person because, man, have you heard about the sin that they committed? Gossip is kind of a way that we keep feeling good about ourselves and thinking maybe we should have a better seat at the table than others. And the bad news about the gospel, the bad news about the table is if you come in thinking that you're higher on the spiritual ladder, uh, you're not when you come to the table of the Lord. Because at this table, the only entrance requirement is a sinner saved by the grace of God. And that's hard news if you somehow have built up a, a religion that says, I'm, I'm better because I've done these acts, or I was here on, uh, on, on, on Thursday doing this act, or I was... None of that matters at the table of the Lord. Because we are all one in Jesus Christ. Again, this table stands as a protest against any kind of superiority that we want to set up. Right now, if you're going to serve at the table, I'd like to ask you to go back. Uh, we're, we're about to engage in communion, but I have a few more thoughts I want to share. I like the way Rachel Held Evans talks about this. She says, the church is positively crawling with people who don't deserve to be here, starting with me. And it's the feeling I had when I first showed up to 1311 York Street in Denver. I'd showed up at the request of a friend who was inviting me to an open meeting. He'd been at this address many times before, and I walk in, and I was surprised by the way they introduced themselves when the meeting started. There was Fred who was leading the meeting, and Fred said, I- I'm Fred, and, and I'm an alcoholic. And, and then there was Susan, and she spoke up, and she said, my name's Susan, and I struggle with alcohol. And then Johnny stood up and Johnny said, I'm, I'm Johnny and I, I'm in recovery from an addiction to alcohol. I'm finding way day by day. And as I heard these distinctions, I realized these aren't people who are coming in claiming superiority because something out there. They realize that the only way that salvation is going to come to them, the only way that they're going to break this addiction and this cycle in their lives and not continue to blow up their families is if they admit who they really are. I'm a sinner, but I'm finding recovery. And I, I got to thinking, if, if Jesus was here today, I wonder if he would say, you know, the kingdom of God is a lot like an AA meeting, where the distinctions we bring in aren't the impressive things in our lives, they're the sins that so easily entangle us that we lay at the foot of the cross and say, day by day, I'm hoping next week I can show up again and be free from it. And what if when we came to the table, when we came to worship, that was the name tag we bore? We're sinners saved by the grace of God. Nothing else really matters. All those degrees on the wall, all those distinctions and honors that we're so proud of in so many of our lives. It's okay to be proud of those things, but when we come to the table, those things don't matter because we're all one in Christ Jesus. So this morning as we share in this bread and as we share in this cup, maybe that's the place we start. Maybe it's the place I should start this morning. I'm calling, (laughs) and I'm a sinner who's in recovery because of this meal 
that continues to remind me who I am. I think the church and the kingdom should look more like this. So welcome to the table of the Lord, all of us. This meal is a sign of God's future that will be breaking into the earth. I can guarantee it because it's what Jesus told us. It's a foretaste of a meal that one day we'll get to share in eternity with God. We get to share in this meal and have a foretaste of what it will one day be like. We are people of God's future. So would you protest with me this morning? Let's pray as we come to the table. God, we're sorry for the times that we've used this table to divide. We repent of the times we've come to this table feeling justified and righteous on our own behalf. We we repent of the times we've looked around a room like this and wondered how they could partake of communion because they've been caught up in sin this week. We we repent of the ways that we make comparisons to make ourselves feel better. This morning we come and we confess we are sinners. But our identity is not primarily as that, God. We're children of the living God. So this morning we come and we lay ourselves at your feet again. We, 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 we depend on your grace this morning and we are so grateful for it. God, we want to be one this morning. So God, draw us together at this table. May this bread and may this cup be your future on display to us so that we can be that future on display to the world. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.